Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. And we are trying to redo uh, the Brian Sidney Parrot episode. Uh, which we got plenty of amazing stuff, uh, luckily, with about an hour, hour and five minutes, if you all want to check it out, if you have not heard it. But uh, Brian should be joining us soon. He is the uh, son of Harold Parrott, who was the beat writer for the Brooklyn Eagle uh, and the Dodgers uh, for, for, I believe it was 15 years. And then he became the traveling secretary and publicist for the Brooklyn and Los Angeles Dodgers. And it is, uh, it was fascinating to talk with him, but unfortunately we got cut off and actually let me explore some of that because I'm a little frustrated with blog talk radio and the way that I've been trying to get these episodes off. I just recently moved to Denver um, about uh, two months, three months ago, and uh, they have it that you need to reset your time zone. Uh, which I discovered on the last uh, podcast, and that was certainly my fault. But I reset the time zone today before uh, um, making the the episode uh, that we're currently listening to, and uh, I changed it uh, to the appropriate one, and it still made it for uh, two hours from now. I, I basically wanted to keep it on the East Coast, so I changed it back to the East Coast, and then started creating the episode, and unfortunately, it didn't uh, match. And I didn't notice it until at the last second. So that is certainly on me, and it is certainly on me, too. I understand how it could probably uh, take a while sometimes for the system to register, and then it's going to set it for 1 o'clock, Central t- uh, 1 o'clock Mountain Time uh, because I had just changed it back to New York. But at the same time, this is twice that I've had issues with the time zones and blog talk radio. And even though I thought I went uh, through the appropriate uh, measures this time, they still ended up screwing me with the, the episode that I originally tweeted out. And uh, I just wanted to uh, approach that and explain to everybody out there why there has been such an issue over the, uh, the last little bit uh, this last week about uh, what time this whole thing was going to take off. And, and uh, now that I have Brian, I will uh, direct it directly to Brian. Brian, I appreciate your patience and uh, uh, and help uh, through all of this. And and we're 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 finally on, and we're going to be having a good show. <laughs> we're, we're taking off now. Good, Sam. Yeah, not to worry. It's fine. I know the time zones can be tricky. I guess, but yeah, I'm ready to go as wherever you want to. Well, actually, I want to go wherever you feel we left off, and I, I wanted to just kind of put the ball back into your court, and, and let's just take it from there. Well, I, I, I listened to the whole show, and several friends of mine did, and they enjoyed it. Um, I think we kind of left off with uh, uh, some of the Walter O'Malley, you know, uh, pulling the trapdoor and Harold Parrott, but it was explained really by Buzzy Bavese that – um, 
dad was so close to Branch Rickey that it was only a matter of time until uh, O'Malley would let him go. So um, I'll just finish, you know, a little bit of dad went uh, to work for Gene Autry and a Mr. Reynolds. I'm trying to think of his first name and opened Anaheim Stadium um, in in 1965 or whatever that first year was and handled season ticket sales and promotions. And he, uh, I asked him about that and he said, matter of factly, well, I set up a meeting with Walt Disney and I said, you met Walt Disney, which I had not known and I was 40 years old at the time. Um, he said, yeah, I wanted to ask if he would send over Mickey Mouse and Minnie and Goofy and uh, the characters so kids could get their uh, pictures taken with the Disney characters. And Walt Disney said, well, I could do better than that. He said, how about if I shut Disneyland down for the day and <clears throat> anybody that buys a ticket to your opening game will get free admission to Disneyland? And Dad said, would you actually do that? He said, yes, I want you to be successful. So they did. It sold out immediately, I think, 58000 and And that was a great start for um, Angel Baseball. But Walt Disney was quite a promoter. Um, so he was yes, there, he was. and then I was up in Seattle playing tennis for Seattle U and getting an education. And, and Marvin Milks was uh, with the Angels. He went up to be the general manager for the pilots. And Dad, you know, was asked by Marvin Milks to come up and help open up the new American League franchise uh, in Seattle and the Seattle pilots. And so Dad left a great job and went up on a handshake to uh, Seattle. And large part, I think, because I was up there, he liked watching me play tennis, and he was up for – in new challenges. On the fourth day of the season, the owner, Dewey Soriano, said, I'm sorry, I can't afford your salary, and let him go. And Dad, you know, said it was, you know, he got it, he got screwed there, too, unfortunately. And he tried to explain to Bowie Kuhn that, you know, this guy was underfunded and, you know, really there was another group that wanted to take over the pilots. But um, in any event, uh, that failed in one year and was sold for $1 million to Milwaukee to uh, uh, Bud Selleck. There was a group in Seattle uh, led by a man with United Airlines that um, offered $12 million to the American League, but it, they would have been more a group instead of one owner. And uh, American League turned that $12 million down for $1 million to Bud Selleck. The, what, the thing about the pilots, what uh, I love from my angle and from the National League uh, New York side of it, is that the uh, 1969 New York Metro, uh, Metropolitans, it's the only World Series trophy with the Seattle Pilots tenant. Now, I'm not following that. How, how did the pilots... We say that again. How so, the, so, the so Met by the pennant, I mean, by the pennant, I mean that the World Series trophy has a flag, has a golden flag for every team in the entire major leagues, and the Seattle Pilots, oh, yeah. who only existed in 1969, 
it's the only the Mets trophy is so unique that it's the only one with the Seattle Pilots flag. Oh wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah, people don't even think about it. Yeah. Yeah, people don't even think no, about it uh, like that. It, it, it is fascinating that your dad uh, made his way up to to that and to to be part of such a a uh, a unique situation uh, uh, for you know in baseball history, considering they only had one year. And I'm not even sure what their record was. And 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 nobody, you know, I'm sure in Seattle they, it's kind of like there's a little bit of nostalgia for it, but I'm sure it's it's very minimal. Yeah, I don't know what the record was either. Um, you know, again, it was in Seattle Sick Stadium was actually the name. Emil Sick was the owner of the uh, Pacific Coast League um, franchise prior to, um, you know, the Seattle Rainiers. And Emil Sick, it was called Sick, S-I-C-K, apostrophe S, Sick Stadium. And it it was a sick stadium. It was pretty old, and, um, you know, of course, I went to uh, a few games there. Um, but anyway, then Dad, uh, Buzzy Bavese. Now, uh, for those that listened to the first podcast, Buzzy knew that Walter had let Dad go on false premises, and Buzzy created a position for Dad in San Diego with the Padres, He had left O'Malley and was running the major league from San Diego franchise, uh, San Diego Padres. And Dad went down there for several years with Buzzy. And uh, so he finished his major league career there. I think Buzzy never told Dad what O'Malley had done with Peter Pitches and the sheriff checking his bank account. But I think Buzzy must have felt a little bit guilty, or not guilty, but just knowing Dad got screwed at the Dodgers, he helped him out with a spot at the Padres. And anyway, it turned out um, to be a a bit of a rough situation. Buzzy's son, one of them, uh, started telling Dad, when are you going to retire, you old MF? And it was a bad deal. I didn't realize how bad it was, but my brother called me and and Todd and said we got to get Dad out of San Diego. What can we do? And and um, I wound up suggesting he become the first executive director for the Pacific Northwest Tennis Association, which they hired him and he did for ten years. And so he was back up in Portland. We had a lot of fun, but I got to hear lots and lots of stories, obviously, from Dad at, during that period of time too. Well, it, it, was some of your motivation was the idea that by the time the Padres, by the time you know you had gone around to the Padres, uh, it just baseball wasn't working out anymore. And was part of the idea just like moving on to a different sport? And also, I have a follow-up question with Portland after you're done with that. Well, I, I think you know I think Dad would have stayed at the Padres, but um, it, it was. When my brother said he's in a bad situation, he didn't tell me how uh, Buzzy's son was attacking Dad uh, and trying to get him to quit. And um, anyway, so it was a bad situation. And I and he always loved tennis. You know, as a sports writer, he had covered the grass court circuits in the 30s and was a founding member of the U.S. Tennis Writers Association. And that's part of why he got me involved in tennis when we moved to California with the Dodgers in the 50s, late 50s. And so 
I just thought it was a logical suggestion that we were, the Pacific Northwest was the last section of the United States Tennis Association of 17 sections. There was no executive director, no office. And so I went up to the meeting and I said, I've got somebody, I think it's time, and he's overqualified for the position, but he'll do a great job. And they hired Dad, and, and that was a 10 fun years working together. That's fantastic. And so this was in Portland? Yeah, he was based in Portland, but he was in charge, executive director uh, for the Pacific Northwest Tennis, which was Oregon, Washington, top half of Idaho, British Columbia, and Alaska. Hmm. So it was geographically the largest section because of Alaska, but we were the smallest section in terms of population. (laughs) Right, right, of course. And so... All this time, and, and without obviously going too far down that rabbit hole, since it's, of course, not the subject matter, I know that there was an interesting story coming out of AAA baseball in Portland at the time. And I forget what the name of the, the team was, but apparently it was a bunch of ragamuffin uh, uh, guys who, who kind of um, took Portland baseball by storm. Yeah, the Mavericks. Uh, it, uh, Bing Russell was uh, the, the lead Maverick, and his son... Uh, the actor, Kurt Russell, played for them, and and uh, they were just uh, rough and ready, great. It was like single A, I think, but whatever it was, you know, Portland was a terrific baseball town. Dale Murphy, I mean, there's a lot of history out of Portland, and uh, since the Beavers, um, that there was a, a spot there for the Mavericks to jump in, and um, anyway, that that's a that's the Mavericks were a, a good baseball story in Portland for a while. I think for all of you who have Netflix, there is a documentary that I believe Netflix purchased, so I, which would mean it should be there all the time if it's a Netflix show, a Netflix documentary. But uh, it's about uh, the story of the Portland Mavericks. And uh, what was it, Bing Russell, you said? Bing Russell was sort of the lead man there, and Kurt Russell, the actor, played for them. Played for his dad. So it's it's yeah, it's it's a really really cool documentary that I suggest every baseball fan out there check out. Uh, but let's let's uh, wrap back around. Uh, so at this point, you're um, basically you're moving along, of course, with Harold and the Dodgers, with with your father and the Dodgers. Um, and so when you first left Brooklyn, when you first left the Northeast, what was your feelings on that? Well, we moved into a place uh, in Rockaway in New York, Rockaway Beach, where we were. We were close to the Atlantic Ocean, I mean, probably 100 yards. And um, the mom and dad scouted Southern California, and they came up with this place, Malibu. Malibu Colony was specifically... We moved in there and uh, rented a house just to see if we would like it, and it was Malibu Movie Colony, and it was um, it was amazing. Uh, Hollywood, uh, you know, Lana Turner was in there, and oh, James Mason. Our best friend was Jack Warden, the actor um, who did a lot of stuff, 104 movies, but in Shampoo and Heaven Can Wait. Um, about Lee Marvin. I mean, we, anyway, it was like my brother Lynn said, celebrity overload. Uh, next door to us was uh, the 
Lawrence Welk announcer, Mr. Robertson. Lawrence Welk came by to visit <clears throat> once, and they brought Grandma in to meet him, and that was a big deal. So, so we're living in Malibu Colony, and um, Dad says to me, he said, "I'd like you to take some tennis lessons." And I go like, "What is what is this?" And I had never seen tennis, and and so I said, Dad, I'm not interested. I'm going to be Louis Aparicio II. I didn't say that exactly, but I was a shortstop, and I was good. And I wanted to, <laughs> you know, I played Little League baseball and was on an all-star team, and, and I had no interest in tennis whatsoever. But I, I took the lessons, and the man showed me the grips, and, you know, and he said, you know, you could be good at this if you decided. And I said, well... You know, he said, have you practiced? I said, no, I haven't. There's The only person to play with is my brother Peter, and I hate losing to him, so I'm not, you know, I didn't practice. But when I got into high school, uh, it was a 1,000 boys, Loyola and Los Angeles, and um, it was an athletic factory. And I saw a 15-year-old named Stan Smith play against one of our players on our high school team, and I thought, there's more to this than I realized because they got to travel on their own on the weekends up to Bakersfield and they got all free rackets and cool jackets. So I started getting serious about it in high school and then wound up uh, getting really into it in my junior year. And I won the national public parks championship and got scholarship offers into colleges. So Tennis became a great vehicle for me, and Dad must have realized I wasn't that big. I went about 90 pounds going into high school and 120 when I graduated. So I was small but fast and coordinated, so tennis turned out to be a great sport for me. And speaking of which, going back to your life and your childhood, I kind of want to go down the culture road of the era a little bit and and uh, you were born in 1947. In fact, it turns out you were born a month before my mother. And okay. uh, so I, I, was, I was wondering, that, or, or were you into music? Were you into movies? And when did that stuff, that, that kind of part of, of American culture, start coming into your mind, if at all? Well, I was into music because I was a singer. I could listen to Elvis Presley like three times, and then I'd have the song. And I used to sing constantly, again, for the Dodgers when they came by, or company came by our house, like the Pee Wee Reese cheating heart and all this. So anyway, um, we moved to Los Angeles into Malibu, and one of my classmates was Nelson Riddle Jr., was the great conductor, Nelson Riddle. And Skip Riddle was a piano player. And then another classmate was Dennis Dragon, who was a drummer. And he was... uh, the younger brother of the captain and the captain and Tennille and the son of a great conductor, uh, L.A. Philharmonic, uh, Carmen Dragon. So I was playing the guitar at the time, Spanish classical guitar. I was taking lessons, and and we tried to form a group, and um, we met and practiced. And um, I thought, you know, with drums and a piano, they can't really hear my guitar, so... I should have said, forget the guitar, let me sing, because I could have sung. And so music was has always been part of my life. I loved um, singing, and I got to meet at the Dodger games uh, Nat King Cole. Uh, one night, um, 
they uh, the Giants were playing, and Nat King Cole had come out with a single, Good Night Little Leaguer was the name of the song. It was one side of the single. And then uh, I was throwing balls in from the outfield with my Dodger uniform, number 14, Gil Hodges. It was actually Lynn's uniform and that I got to use when, you know, it fit me. And then Dad said, they want to take pictures. They need a Little Leaguer for this uh, promotional poster with Nat King Cole. So they took all kinds of pictures with me and Nat King Cole and Willie Mays and all this other stuff. And they wound up using that for Capitol Records for the poster, which I have a copy of. And I sent, I showed it to uh, Natalie Cole when she came to Portland several years ago and she signed it. But anyway, um, I loved music and, uh, but you know, I was always following it, but I never got into it officially and then, but just continued to sing uh, karaoke, and you know, I say, I anyway, I'm, I loved all well, of the you, music. Do you think that, um, like some, like you know, you, you were basically three, four, five when doo-wop was starting to come into prominence, and especially uh, being in New York City, uh, what was right. that? Was that any influence on you? Well, I remember as a kid, I when I was little, when I was four, five, six, seven years old, my brother Lynn, particularly, and his girlfriend that became his wife, Dottie, they um, used to take me to their parties. And it was just like happy days, you know, they're all dancing. And it was, you know, the one, two, three o'clock, four o'clock rock. And it was, um, yeah, that was, that was New York was, uh, you know, there was a lot of social scene for, in uh, St. Francis de Sales, and and then Lynn went. Lynn and Todd went to Brooklyn Prep. So, yeah, that was all going on too. And um, so anyway, I, I, there's really no kind of music I don't like, but um, but that was going on. Right. And then Me neither. California was the Beach Boys. That was huge when that came out. And and so uh, uh, anyway, I've, I've followed it all and loved listening to uh, all the great music of the 60s 70s and 50s 60s 70s and 80s and so anyway but i don't i don't have a strong connection to it other than uh i did have an audition at capitol records for a commercial um and again it must have been dad that told him they he must have found out that they were looking for uh somebody on a commercial for a jingle for mr bubble mr bubble bubbles your troubles away so I go in. Do you remember to, it? Oh yeah, Mr. Bubble bubbles your troubles away, and I was, and they said, you know, we're sorry, but we need a squeaky kid's voice. Your voice is too developed, um, and so get the. Uh, I did not get the uh, part, but I saved the check. It was a one dollar check, nineteen fifty nine. So what what I'm I'm wondering, do you remember the jingle and can you perform it right now? Well, I only I remember the lyrics was Mr. Bubble bubbles your troubles away, but I don't remember the actual jingle. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I figured I might as well try, right? <laughs> sure, sure. Um so so we're gonna uh even we're gonna jump back even further. We were talking about nineteen fifty nine. So let's go back to the thirties. What was it like for your father being a beat writer for not only a New York baseball team in the 30s, but the Brooklyn Dodgers? 
Well, he loved to write. I, my father was, you know, just loved um, writing. And he was, you know, with his command of the English language that he had, he could write very colorfully. And in the 30s, uh, going through his scrapbook, I saw interviews he did with Babe Ruth. And one, you know, I think it was 38 or 39 when the Giants and the Yankees were in the World Series, he ghosted um, – for Lou Gehrig and Carl Hubble in the same World Series, you know, their take on the World Series, whatever year that was. And um, he was a prolific contributor to the Sporting News. J.G. Uh, Taylor Spink was the publicist or the publisher of the Sporting News, and he he called my father Bonfire, or some other writer had called him Bonfire in the Bonfire of Brooklyn, and... Um, Mr. Spink would was was you know called Dad for a, a story on this or that and would send him wires bonfire give me his, this story and whatever and he so he was picking up not only his Brooklyn Eagle check but he was making some money writing for the uh, sporting news as well as magazine articles he did one uh, one which a classic um, about uh, Leo DeRocher and uh, Eddie Stanky. And it really, the title of, and I have a copy of the cover, it was for the Saturday Evening Post, Stinky Stanky Drives Wild Men Wilder was the title, the dead, the, was the head. And the subhead was, he can't hit, he can't throw, and he can't run, but Judas Priest, how he can annoy. Uh, DeRocher ranks him more valuable than Roger Hornsby at his peak, you know, and so it was an article, you know, and he would pick up, you know, 500 to to $1,000 for magazine articles that he would do. So he was in his uh, prime uh, pumping out stories uh, constantly for the Eagle, sporting news, magazines, and, um, you know, and he was, uh, you know, a prolific writer. One writer sam in um chicago jerome holtzman who became the historian for uh major league baseball for bud Selleck. when i called him i said mr holtzman we're going to republish dad's book lords of baseball and i'd like to know if you would write a new forward uh and he said i'd be happy to uh and he immediately accepted um he said and i said to him i said just out of curiosity why did you invite dad to be in your book, No Cheering in the Press Box, which he had put together writers uh, doing a chapters, No Cheering in the Press Box, Jerome Holtzman. And uh, Mr. Holtzman said, uh, your father was an obvious choice. He was one of the top baseball writers of the 20th century. He said, I'm sorry i got to take another phone call, but let me know if you find a publisher. And, you know, he had to hang up. But his dad was highly respected and loved writing and, you know, and, I don't think he really wanted to give up his writing when uh, Mr. Ricky asked him to become the traveling secretary in the fall of 43. Right, exactly. And did he continue to ghostwrite? Yes, he did. In fact, one he wrote two books in his life and one was a ghost written it was it's by it says uh, The Dodgers and Me by Leo DeRocher. And dad wrote that after one of the seasons when Leo was the manager. And um, I happened to ask him about the tape. And, Sam, I'm trying to 
see if I can get that tape converted so I can share it with you when I asked Dad about all of his, much of his history. And um, Dad said, yeah, I was following a season, and they wanted a book in three weeks. And Dad said, I managed to provide. He wrote, uh, he wrote The Dodgers and Me uh, by Leo DeRocher, and Dad wrote the book. Um, so he continued to ghost, yes. Um, and I, I've got to, it makes me think of another uh, Howard Cosell story. Dad saw Howard Cosell uh, in San Diego, and they hadn't seen each other in 20 years or something long. And uh, I asked Dad about that, and he said, Howard Cosell didn't just say hello. He said, uh, the author of The Dodgers and Me, a book for which you received little of the credit was your due. Harold, how are you? And that was the way Cosell said hello. So <laughs> And and that was people. and that was not live on television, right? That was in person. <laughs> just privately, right? right? <laughs> that was privately. Brilliant. And then by the way, that was a good uh that was uh, both you Branch Ricky and your uh, your Howard Cosell are <laughs> excellent. So um so I want you to tell the Larry McPhail story because obviously you know, I think a lot of times we can assume everybody knows this stuff, but we got to assume that that there's always somebody who are who, who does not know it. Uh, that's why Joe DiMaggio, as he used to say, would play with such vigor every day because um, somebody out there has not seen him. So, um, before we get into Larry McPhail's story, I was hoping you could pull another story out of the the uh, Lords of Baseball hat uh, regarding your father. And, and and specifically, if you could, during his beat years. Well, I remember one that it always struck me funny was um, it was uh, Wilbert Robinson was the uh, manager of the Dodgers and had been the manager for like twenty years, and I don't know if it was McPhail or not, um, but Hack Wilson was uh, was brought to the Dodgers and he had hit like 59 home runs one year, you know, in the American League, and 55 at least. But anyway, Dad said he was a short, barrel-chested guy with uh, size 5 shoes, but he, he could, you know, pull out the home runs. But he he was a heavy drinker. And um, Dad said in that uh, Wilbert Robinson was trying to set a, a new tone for the Dodgers, and... Um, at the opening meeting or one of the meeting, early meetings in the uh in the Dodger year um Wilbert Robinson brought a, a a a glass of water and a glass of gin and a garden worm and the garden worm <clears throat> was put into the water and he said gentlemen I would like to see what you learned from this little experiment and he puts the worm in the water and then he and it wiggles around, and then he puts the worm in the gin, and within a few moments, the worm is dead. And um, he said, do you learn anything from that, gentlemen? Mr. Wilson, you learn anything from that? And Hack Wilson said, I sure do, Skip. Uh, he said, if you drink gin, you'll never get worms. So I always said that was a funny <laughs> true story. But Dad would cover... You know, uh, you know stories and 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 write about things and um, covering the Dodgers with McPhail. Of course, McPhail was a heavy drinker, and um, 
I think the story you want me to tell, and there's greater detail in the Lords of Baseball about it, but uh, Dad wrote something Larry McPhail didn't like, and when Dad was at the Ebbets Field, McPhail punched him in the nose and banned him from Ebbets Field for life, you know. So Dad went back to the Eagle, and they weren't going to let that happen. But it all smoothed over. I don't recall what he had written that McPhail didn't like, but McPhail was uh, was pretty uh, spontaneous there, I guess. And, and well, while we uh, while we talk while we talk about it, I'll see if I, I mean uh, while we talk just generally, I'll see if I can hunt it down uh, in in everything. Yeah. Um, in terms of what what the specific thing written, and probably it's, I can go to Frank Graham's book because that was one of the more definitive Brooklyn Dodger histories written at that time. And I'm pretty sure right. it was like not even written. I think I'm pretty sure it came out before 1941 or, uh, or it came out just right after that. And he wanted to kind of recollect the last era, which was basically just ending as they were becoming good again. But um, now, so, Sam, while you look at that, yeah. I've got a, you, you mentioned Frankie Graham and dad, told me another story about Frankie Graham and Leo DeRocher and, and Dad. And it's really a, a very, it's a good one um, and, you know, bears uh, repeating. Um, Leo was the manager of the Dodgers. Dad was the traveling secretary, but still writing and, uh, for the Eagle, uh, which I, I think is amazing, you know, that he was still, he was a journalist at the same time he was on the Dodger payroll. But anyway, um, they were on the dugout steps, and Frankie Graham said, you know, it's a shame the Giants are doing so poorly under Mel Ott, and uh, he's such a nice guy. And and so the, the, the three of them were standing there, just the three of them. And, um, you know, Leo says, yeah, Mel Ott is a nice guy, he said, but he's got no control of that club. He said they're coming in at all hours. And he said one of their players showed up at the game in a full tuxedo. He'd been out all night. And um, and so, uh, you know, Leo was making the point that uh, Mel Ott was, you know, had lost control of his ball club. And, and um, so Graham says he's such a nice guy, and then Leo's response which was written by Frankie Graham first and Harold Parrott in his column was, yeah, but in this league, nice guys are going to finish last. And so Dad wrote that in his column, and uh, Graham wrote it in his, and it became the handle, you know, for Leo DeRocher, nice guys finish last, and misinterpreted to think that, you know, you got to be, you know, you can't be a nice guy and win, but what really Leo was talking about was discipline and you're not going to, you're not going to do well without discipline on a club or a team or whatever. So exactly. um, I think that's, I found know, it, that, but way. Frank, what's that? I found it. Great. It was the first Harold Parrott part of the index. It's, it's literally the first pages that your father comes uh, up on. So, uh, I will read the, the paragraphs real quick. Um, okay. We don't have to go too deep into it, but uh, it definitely ends basically with Ford Frick. So uh, for all of you readers out there, the Brooklyn Dodgers and informal history, Frank Graham, 
Um, and it, it's something that basically ends right before the next golden era of Brooklyn Dodgers history and right before they left. So, page 173, Brooklyn Dodgers and informal history, Frank Graham. Harold Parrott of the Eagle, looking over some out-of-town newspapers, came across a Milwaukee paper carrying a story which set forth that the president of the Milwaukee club was threatening to demand the return of Whit Wyatt. I think Whitlow Wyatt, right? That's his name? Yes. Whitlow Wyatt. McSale, according right. to this story, had not yet come through with four players he had promised Milwaukee as part of the deal, although demands for them had been made upon him since the opening of the season. This, of course, was news in Brooklyn since Wyatt rapidly was becoming a favorite at Ebbets Field. Parrott rewrote the story, and it was flapped on the front page of the Eagles' first edition. For the game that afternoon, he was on his way to the press box at Ebbets Field with McPhail suddenly lunged out of the milling, uh, the milling fans in the back of the stands to confront him. You bleeping liar, Larry roared. You little, like, blah, 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 probably son of a bitch, I'm guessing. Parrott's attempts to defend himself against the verbal onslaught were useless because when McPhail is angry, he leaves few openings for his opponent. He continued to berate Parrott at the top of his voice as a ring of curious fans gathered about them. I'll have you barred from the park, he yelled. I've got a good mind to have you thrown out now, you blank. I'll show you whether or not you can lie about me in your lousy paper. You never get into this ballpark again. Parrott, unable to make a stand before this blast, beat an orderly retreat in the direction of a telephone and called Ford Frick to give him a first-hand report of the battle and seek his advice. So the thing with Frank Graham, I heard, was that he never forgot a thing. You mean uh, McPhail? No, no, no. Uh, Frank Graham, the the writer. Uh, yeah. You know, when like you you're considering how detailed it is. So apparently, yeah. he never forgot a thing. No, and they were good friend, very good friends, uh, uh, Dad and Frank Graham. And um, so, I, I it, he doesn't say that he punched Dad in the nose. I mean. If if uh, that's the thing, though, if you're saying that, let me see. During that part, I read everything up to that part on page 174. Parrot unable to make a stand before this blast. And, yes, at some point it only talks about a verbal onslaught. Yeah. And then um, Ford just says, keep away from him for the rest of the afternoon. I'll get him on the phone as soon as I can to straighten him out. And I can assure you, you won't be barred from the park. So um, so then, obviously, it says that, you know, <laughs> Larry apologizes to him. But did the punch maybe happen afterwards? Maybe it's in a few pages? No, he well, ma- all he I know is Dad him told- again? No, I don't. Uh, all I know is Dad told me that McPhail punched him in the nose. And I don't know. Maybe that uh, was other, a separate I, incident. I don't know. You know, all I know is that, you know, he was... He was hot about something that Dad had written, and that's obviously what it was. And Whitlow Wyatt uh, it w- came in um, and, you know, did extremely well. But he, um, uh, Ford Frick, that's amazing. Dad just immediately got on the phone you know, with Ford, Ford maybe, Frick. Maybe Ford felt as if he needed to leave the violence out of the, the dramatics of the book. Perhaps. And so, I, you know, because um, only from, like, if that's what he's thinking. Yeah, 
there's, here's a sound, little I mean, sport. it definitely sounds like it was this thing. Like, it definitely sounds like this was the incident. And I think I've heard yeah. it written, I think I've heard it written other places, just obviously without the detail maybe of the Whitlow Wyatt part. Uh, uh, it has been written as there was a, there was a punch involved. Yeah. Well, anyway, Dad told me that he did punch him, but um, uh, the uh, the Ford Frick thing reminds me that when Branch Rickey came in uh, to take over for McPhail when he was fired, um, Ford Frick gave Dad the tip, you know, uh, and gave him the exclusive, and so Dad wrote about Ricky coming into Brooklyn in whatever year that was. And um, and so Dad had a good relationship with Ford Frick, who I think was president of the National League at the time. As a writer, uh, did he ever need uh, to have a relationship with Branch Rickey, even though Branch Rickey was in St. Louis? No, he didn't. He covered uh, you know, the Dodgers, so he knew of Rickey and – Dad wrote an article for a magazine called uh, This Week uh, in 1941, and I have a copy of it, um, and it's called The Brain of Baseball and about the brilliance of Ricky with the farm system. And and I think basically it was a very positive piece about Ricky in 41. And uh, so Dad knew of Ricky, of course, because of, you know, they, the Gas House Gang and Leo DeRocher and how they won – you know how good they were in the 30s, and um, but I, th- I think when Ricky came to New York, he knew he had uh, a, a, a f- not a fan, but at least uh, somebody that would write about him fairly, um, and so that's what, you know the reason I believe he asked Dad to become the traveling secretary in the fall of 43, which he started in 44. Yeah, that's uh, it's remarkable. It must have been really remarkable and shocking for your father. And I know you told the story in the last podcast, but we might as well, uh, you know, relitigate it. I I think that it 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 must have been a complete and like all of a sudden a fork in the road that your father was not expecting. Say that again. A fork in the road that my father was what? Oh, a fork in the road that your father was not expecting. Oh, yeah. He wasn't expecting Ricky to ask him to become the traveling secretary. But Ricky's brilliance, not only did he get a traveling secretary, but he got a publicist that had connections with all the writers, which was very positive, and and a writer. You know, he continued to write for the Eagle and magazines and sport magazine and sporting news and uh, so uh, Ricky made a good deal in getting Harold Parrott to come to work for him as uh, the traveling secretary in 1944. Right. So let's uh, let's delve deep into the 50s. Now, Walter O'Malley and Robert Moses are having conversations. Where's your father in all of this? Well, uh, in 19, uh, the year that Ricky was forced out of the Dodgers by O'Malley, when O'Malley got controlling interest, um, whatever year that was, Sam, and you may know better than I, but I think it was around 50, uh, Dad, <clears throat> Dad 
was asked to go to Pittsburgh with Mr. Ricky, and Ricky had outsmarted uh, O'Malley in the, you know, it, with the sale of his shares, and that's a, quite a good story, and it's in the Lords of Baseball. Ricky had bought um, his interest in the Dodgers for like I believe around two hundred and fifty thousand dollars when he came to Brooklyn, and then he proceeds to load up the Dodgers with a team that, you know, challenges, wins the pennant in 46, uh, seven. And then, and anyway, when the confrontation, when O'Malley was trying to force Ricky out, he offered Ricky the same amount, like 250,000 for his shares. Cause he knew he had to sell them and he had to, uh, uh, sell him before he could go to uh, go back to Pittsburgh or go to Pittsburgh. So, Ricky, there was a stipulation in the contract that if somebody offered more for the shares, um, that that had to be matched. And so, Ricky got a man named Zeckendorf, who was the builder of the Empire State Building, to offer. Branch Ricky one million dollars for his shares uh, with the Dodgers. So O'Malley was faced with he either has a new partner in Zeckendorf or he buys the shares for a million dollars and matches Zeckendorf's offer. So that's what uh, O'Malley wound up paying the million dollars for the Ricky shares. And while they had this going on, there was a $50,000 check uh, to Zeckendorf for tying his money up. Which maybe it was put in escrow or whatever. And when the check came back to O'Malley, uh, the $50,000 check to Zeckendorf was endorsed to Branch Ricky. So Ricky not only got the million, but he got the 50000 on top of it. And when you think about Buzzy Bavese's comment when it came to money there was something wrong with Walter. That must be part of uh, O'Malley's hatred of Ricky. He outsmarted him uh, so well in that particular case. So Dad was asked it, by it, O'Malley to yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. take over the um, business manager, ticket manager job. And Dad would have turned it down because he much preferred, you know, traveling secretary, partly because they got World Series share. The traveling secretary, I have a canceled stub of a check for $4,000 that Dad got in uh, 1947. So when they were winning pennants, there was extra money coming in uh, for the World Series share for Harold Parrott and the traveling secretary. So Dad told O'Malley he'd take the job, but he didn't want to give up the, um, you know, the share. And so O'Malley agreed to let Dad uh, get a World Series share. Um, and then after one year, he reneged on that and said to Dad, you know, how long did you think I was going to let that go on? But anyway, um, Dad became the ticket manager and, you know, handled all of the tickets at Ebbets Field for, you know, through 1957 and then had the same role in Los Angeles with the Dodgers when they were setting up in the Coliseum and then Dodger Stadium. So my father's role uh, during that time with O'Malley, Ricky, and uh, Moses was, you know, just as an executive 
and uh, you know, I don't know that he had a particular role in that, but and I knew, you know, I'm sure he was well aware of the uh, animosity between O'Malley and Ricky. And you hear something like that, you know, whether it be the reserve clause or whether it just be, you know, uh, going back on your word. There seems to be this old school business unethical way that, you know, of manipulating the system that was completely accepted for the longest time just because it's business was, is the, is the, uh, the saying. It's just business. And um, you, you still see some of that today. Uh, but ethics and, and not, not to say that, you know, Walter O'Malley shouldn't have done right by his business as, as, as one should, but where do you draw the line? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's one of those. And, and not necessarily whether, whether it's really just talking about the broad way that Walter O'Malley handled himself when it came to money, not just the fact that it led the decision and the that type of mindset led to the Dodgers leaving. Yeah. I mean, if only, you know, O'Malley, O'Malley made the move and <clears throat> it was very successful and great for the kids in L.A. and terrible for the kids in Brooklyn. But then again, you know, out of death comes life and you're talking about the, the Mets. And even though they can be a mess, they're still, as far as I'm concerned, a lot a lot more fun and exciting and less boring than their counterpart of New York, which is the entire point of National League Baseball in New York and what the Dodgers and the Giants represent. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know, when, when I think about the move um, – and I think about it in terms of how excited a city gets when a team wins a world championship. Well, the Dodgers were in the World Series six out of ten years from 57, 47 to 57 and won the World Series, of course, in 55. They were in the World Series in 56. They finished second to Milwaukee with Hank Aaron and Eddie Matthews and Del Crandall and Warren Spahn in Lou Burdett in uh, 57, and they were gone in 58. So to have such a successful franchise ripped out of a city um, is really uh, remarkable. And, I mean, it's that it that it happened, but it did. And so I think it was devastating uh, for lots of people. And reminds and then, one of the, the story, if, if you were in a room uh, with uh, Stalin... <laughs> Hitler and Walter O'Malley, and you had a gun with only two bullets, what would you do with it? And uh, the answer in Brooklyn is you shoot O'Malley twice. Yeah, I just, that's definitely uh, <laughs> a, a, just one that's just, I love every time. It just eats up, and, and it's, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, because you, you really do shoot Hitler and probably Stalin, <laughs> but like in reality, but it, you get the joke. You completely understand the joke. Um, right. And and um, at the same time, like like the thing about it is that you know it 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 is devastating. But um, you, you you just think about the joy when 
you know, the Mets are the only team, I believe, in the entire world to exist because two teams left. And so you think about the joy of getting a team back, and even though they were the worst team that modern era had ever seen, <laughs> they also lost in very entertaining ways. They, they also always seemed to be right on the edge of not being that bad. And had they, if you really look at the numbers, had they come through at least like half the times that they were in a position to, to maybe either tie or, or go ahead, they probably would have been maybe a 90 or even better team, 90 loss or better team. So, uh, you know, it's just funny because a lot of people say, you know, five years earlier that team would have been pretty, pretty all right. Yeah. Well, it is. It is the Miracle Mets were a great, and Gil Hodges had a, obviously a lot to do with that. And um, you know, it's a great story that baseball, National League baseball, came back to uh, uh, to Brooklyn. Um, but uh, while we're on this uh, subject of dad writing and Walter O'Malley and Ricky and all that, um, in 1976. Um, when Prager, which was the publishing company, uh, gave Dad $20,000 to write a book. Um, And I might add, he suggested the title, The Boneheads of Baseball. And um, one of the lines that I don't know if it was Dad's or he credited somebody else, but baseball must be the greatest sport to survive the men that run it. And... um, Anyway, the publisher didn't title the book The, the uh, Boneheads of Baseball. They used the Dick Young Lords of Baseball phrase. And when Walter O'Malley found out that Harold Parrott was coming out with a book, I'm sure not knowing whether or not he had found out about Peter Pitches and all that other stuff, he didn't want a book written by Harold Parrott to be out in circulation so dad told me that O'Malley bought 12,000 copies he bought the entire inventory from Prager and my guess and this is again Brian Parrott's speculation he probably threatened them with a lawsuit if they went into a second printing and so he bought the copies and kept them out of the bookstores in 1976 and it was reviewed by 103 dailies around the country and compared to ball four uh, again jerome holtzman said for honesty it is equal to if not possibly surpasses ball four um and uh, anyway when i was asking my dad at one point i said i don't understand why the book didn't do better and he told me well nobody could buy it because it was not in the bookstores in 76 when it was reviewed that's what prompted me to say to my brother <laughs> Todd, uh, we got to republish it. If there's any possible truth, we got to pub- republish that. And so we republished the Lords of Baseball in 2001. And um, and that's really, I'm thrilled that we did it. It was Todd put the money up and I did the the, the promotion with Sabre and, and uh, sports talk shows and things like what? that to bring it back. What I like about the title is that nobody ever said that lords can't be boneheads, and so that's right. <laughs> that's that's my my take on it. 
is, is that that's why it works because they're still lords of the game. They and and you know it's the content, it's the context, it's the it's the content of the book that shows how boneheady they could be. And um, yeah, go ahead. Dad, uh, Dad, when we, our final book signing that year, the two years we did it, the republishing um, was at Cooperstown, and uh, the author series manager uh, said uh, he just reread. He said it's really one of the best baseball books ever written, and um, and so it's been a treasure trove uh, for many. And I know that it was used uh, for the movie Forty Two, many of the scenes that were in there. And when uh, the fellow that was selected uh, to play dad called me and he said, can I meet you and find out more? He said when he was got the part, uh, the screenwriter and director handed him the Lords of Baseball and said, your character wrote this book, so you should read this. And so obviously they used the Lords of Baseball for the movie 42, which is great. And... It's a treasure trove for Sam Maxwell, too, because it's got all kinds of uh, tidbits, certain. you know, uh, from McPhail to O'Malley to Ricky to Robinson, Reese, Scott Hodges, and Newcomb and everybody. So it's a great piece of history, and it's terrific that Dad did it. And the republishing, um, we put the proceeds into a foundation called the Bonfire Foundation, and Todd stocked it with uh, some uh, stock, too, and it's apparently just under a million dollars that's there, and it helps uh, kids' education, um, you know, support for uh, continued education, the Bonfire Foundation. Well, that's fantastic, and if you want to elaborate on that and certainly tell people where they can go to to, um, give to that. I think you can, uh, you know, Google the Bonfire Foundation, and my uh, my niece and goddaughter Heather uh, runs the foundation, and and she handles all of the requests and things. But you can find it on the the Bonfire Foundation. I think has got a website. Well, perfect. Yeah, just go to uh, Google and type in Bonfire Foundation, and uh, it should direct you to the website. These days, you don't even need to spell it all out in the website. So just tell them go 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 to Google. Uh, so we're, we're gonna we're gonna uh, wrap it up uh, pretty soon, and so you know we usually go to the last word, Brian, when we don't get cut off by Block Talk Radio. I'm still giving them a little jab, but you know it it, it is what it is. It's a, it's a love hate relationship. We're family, um, but so so I'm gonna pass it to you for the last word. Whatever you want to wrap up this segment, you know, because you know these these two last podcasts that can kind of be grouped together. Uh, for for your father and for uh, for the Lords of Baseball. Well, I want to encourage you, Sam. I think you're on to something with uh, a series, and uh, hopefully the HBO is uh, would be a good place for it uh, to to treat the history of um, uh, you know Brooklyn from '38 through '57. And again, Dad's work will uh, provide you with a lot of additional insight and you know some copy i'm sure because the way he wrote it i'm really happy that uh you know we republished the lords of baseball and more people got to enjoy it and um i would like to get it on tape and then uh, 
continue to let people know that there's um, a book like that that's fun to read. It is. Uh, Dad was had a great sense of humor and wrote very colorfully, but he, um, you know, it was a contribution to uh, to actual history. And I'm sure the more, you know, the history, the truth is stranger than any fiction. So the more truth that comes out about what happened with Brooklyn in those years and how it literally changed the world. Um, and it was a great group of people and very interesting characters. And I'll, I'll close by saying to my, you know, what I said to my dad when he said, how lucky I've been to be in the middle of all of this. And I, I said, well, dad, that's true. But I said, they were lucky that you were there because he had a lot to do with the whole Brooklyn Dodger mystique. I mean, from the late thirties or in the thirties through the forties and, and, uh, you know, even into the fifties, even though he wasn't writing as much in the fifties. Um, but his book, the Lord's baseball is, a worthwhile read for anyone, uh, that is interested in that kind of history. And I think the only way to end with that would be to say, Google, the Lords of Baseball, and you will find uh, you will find it on Amazon or just Amazon. The Lords of Baseball is it is it in uh, e reader form yet? Is it in what form? E reader form, like Kindle. No, no. I actually I would talk to a publisher in New York about getting it on Kindle, but we haven't gotten it done yet. Well, it, yeah, it, it's certainly a, a good idea, and I can't wait to uh, – I mean, I, I'm going to read it regardless, <laughs> considering yeah. that I have a hard copy right next to me as we speak. So, um, Brian, I, I will also say, and I appreciate uh, the kind words, and, and I've – yeah, I've, I've thought I'm onto something, and I appreciate the audience uh, being here and also having patience with, with this entire thing and understanding that the research process, especially the something – as ambitious as this, which could cost over a billion dollars, theoretically, the way filmmaking and production works these days. Um, you know, when we're talking about something like this, it, you gotta, you can't have it be half-baked. you got to make sure that it's completely ready to go. And like I've said over the years, I, I, I couldn't have imagined being at this point without having lived in Brooklyn for the majority of my 20s. That was just unbelievable, and here I am in Denver off for a different journey. But what I, uh, what I kind of like in some fashion from a, a um, uh, you know, uh, oh God, I just lost the word exactly, but just from like a sign as to how, what, what the Dodgers are and, and, and uh, how this, this uh, podcast is evolving and how the, the project is evolving – when you see how it got started with all these time zone weirdness and, and the way that blog talk radio has it set up, you know, we, we can be the 1955 Dodgers while being the daffiness boys all at the same time. And that's, that's kind of endearing to me that, you know, you, you go through failures, you go through mistakes, you go through ups and downs, but at some point you come out on top and even unfortunately it might be ripped it might be ripped yeah. away from you at any point, but still, there's that one moment, and and thank God, the Dodger community has that, and and here we are uh, still today talking about it, and hopefully we can show some people from a dramatic narrative standpoint at some point. And Brian, I thank you for helping me 
here right now, and I, uh, I look forward to uh, more help in the future. All right, Sam. Take care. Thanks again. Absolutely, and thank you all for listening in, and uh, tune in when, uh, when next time. Well, we'll let you know. Take care. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.